Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, your weekly source for questions and answers around equity in yoga, hosted by Jeevana Heyman and Amber Carnes. Join us each week for powerful conversations with thought leaders at the intersection of justice, knowledge, and practice. Welcome to episode 16. I'm your host, Amber Carnes. Episode 16 is the second in a series about making yoga asana accessible for all bodies. In this episode, Jeevana and I talk about the language we use as yoga teachers. Jeevana shares what the Yoga Sutras say about the role of asana in our practice, and we talk in depth about investigating and shifting the language we use to communicate in our teaching spaces. I also talk briefly about my recent yoga journal cover issue, including the history of harm the publication has had in yoga and wellness, and the importance of holding these large organizations accountable. This conversation is a rich exchange about the way our words can create belonging and affirm our students, or our words can uphold systems of oppression and perpetuate a yoga practice that is inaccessible to most. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Hi, everyone. Uh, This is Jeeva and I. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm here with Amber. Hey, Amber. Hey, how's, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm all right. Are you? I've, I've been a little um, worried about you. It's been a big week. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a big week. Uh, yeah, I'm on the cover of Yoga Journal magazine, which is a very bizarre sentence for me to say, even though I've said it a few times now. <laughs> I know. I'm so excited about it. I think I'm more excited than anyone. Um, anyway, but <laughs> I'm biggest I, fan. I'm your biggest <laughs> fan. Yay. This is like my dream yeah, come true. It's a little weird. It's uh, I never thought I'd see the day, as they say. Um, right. You know, you and I have both been pretty vocal um, cri- uh, critics. Yeah, critics maybe is the word um, mm-hmm. of Yoga Journal and their lack of representation, diverse representation over the years. I know like going back to 2014, I remember like being interviewed for articles and I remember Diane Bondi, you know, and the off the mat folks going to advocate to them. Like this, this has been going on a long time, you know? Yeah. And, um, Oh, was Diane and the, um, um, yoga and body image coalition group. Yeah, that too. And then the Uh, yoga and body image coalition, you know, took them to task. Like there's been a lot over the years, you know, more recently, um, you know, there were issues with them doing split covers and yeah, well, I wrote that letter. So like that was, that was the post of mine that like went viral that of like all things I've ever written. I wrote this blog about it, about (laughs) Jessamine Stanley's cover being a split cover. And like, yeah, that was terrible, but you know what? I, people probably don't know this, but I know that, um, you know, you and I both been kind of talking to them and really asking them like what they're doing about it. And they are trying. So that's why I think we're both willing to give them a chance. And, um, you know, it's like people can change. It doesn't erase the past, but at least they can do better moving forward. So I'm, I'm excited. And I, you know, I think that if we continually as an industry push for change and then we see, you know, that was one of the reasons why I said yes, um, which I did deliberate over for a long time. And I'm going to write more about that at some point. Um, but I, one of the reasons I did say yes is because like, I think that if we push for diverse representation and then we start seeing that, right. So Lindsay Tucker, the woman that wrote the piece, um, my piece, which she also wrote, uh, Nicole Cardoza and Jessamine Stanley's cover stories. And, 
um, you know, she told me about a lot of like pushing from the inside that they've made to be able to create change. And I know that like three of the last four covers were people of color and they had someone with a visible disability and amputee on the cover of the month yeah. before me. Like it's really, I think, a positive thing, even though is it perfect? No. Is it do we need to push them further? Of course we do. Um, but I do think it's a big deal. I do think it's especially a big deal to see a visibly fat body on the cover of this magazine in particular. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because Yoga Journal, you know, for all intents and purposes, at least in my opinion, has for a long time kind of functioned like a fashion magazine or like uh, sort of the epitome of like what a diet culture magazine represents for me. And I think in the past, um, you know, when I saw them try to do representation often it was sort of like tokenizing or whatever and so i you know i really got to spend some time talking with um the editor that wrote the piece and um some of the new leadership um and there have been changes in the leadership there and in the the ownership of that company since you know jessamine and nicole both had you know issues with their uh, issues, <laughs> the additions that they were in. And um, so, yeah, you know, I, while I think it's important that we still continue to push this conversation further, continue to hold them accountable, definitely want to see more people of color in leadership and much more, you know, diversity as far as their staff is concerned and the people they feature, like, it's a step in the right direction. And I think, like, this community gets to celebrate that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it definitely wasn't like one person that made this sort of sea change happen. And, you know, Yoga Journal doesn't represent a lot of people in this community. And I wouldn't even necessarily say like, oh, yeah, they represent me as a publication. But I think that mm. this is, it does mean something. It does mean something to the, the wider conversation in yoga as far as accessibility and diversity and um, and all of that to see like, two covers in a row, you know, an amputee yeah. of color who's a man and then a fat woman on the cover, that's a pretty big deal. Objectively, yeah. it's a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say. I'm, I'm so. excited about it. And yeah. yeah, and also it's great to celebrate you. I mean, I, I agree that it's not just about you, that it represents a change and, and that you represent more than just yourself. I feel like you really represent our accessible yoga community by being on there, first of all, but also you are amazing. So you also can represent yourself and like the work you've done and the article's really great too. Like I feel like they kind of captured um, the essence of your work and the impact you're having on the yoga world, which is huge. So I, I'm excited. I'm excited about Thanks, it. Thanks, Shivra. <laughs> okay, but I know that's not what we're talking about today. I mean, it's not. It's not. We could talk about something else. <laughs> I mean, it's related. You know, I mean, I think we're, we're continuing our conversation about um, making asana accessible. And um, I know this is a passion for both of us. So we could talk about this probably like, well, I know we talk about it for hours because we lead trainings for hours and hours on yeah. this topic. But, um, I kind of had two thoughts today. I mean, I want to give a little background, just stepping back again, um, as we go back into this conversation on asana, to look at the role of asana within yoga traditionally, and then look at some of the ways you can make asana accessible, especially around language. I think that's what we're going to focus on today, like the language we use as yoga teachers um, it, within classrooms, right? That's the other piece? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, I just, I just want to talk a little bit about um, 
Yeah, the kind of the philosophical basis for asana, actually. I, I don't think we talked about it in the last episode specifically, but I just think it can be really helpful for yoga teachers and practitioners to kind of review, like, what is what is asana for, at least within the traditional texts, especially the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. I mean, mm-hmm. within the sutras, there are three... There's three sutras that mention asana, or that are about asana, I should say. Um, and asana is presented, you know, in the um, second book, the portion on practice, underneath the eight limbs of yoga, right? So it's the third limb of Ashtanga yoga. But I think what's important to remember it's it's the context that you know yoga is about connecting with yourself and like connecting with spirit or Atman or Purusha, whatever word you use. And that inward journey. And I think, <clears throat> generally speaking, that's the challenge I see about making asana accessible in this kind of modern yoga scene is that yoga generally is not taught that way. It's generally taught with this external focus, um, yeah, which feels very much. What? Sorry? Like a physical focus, you mean? Yeah, not only physical, but like external focus in terms of, yeah, like physical appearance and competition. Um, and that more is better and that more physically advanced poses are more advanced yoga. And I think mm-hmm. what Patanjali constantly reminds me of is that yoga is about this inner journey. And so, you know, I know people will argue and say, well, the asana he was talking about wasn't the asana we're practicing today. And I'm sure that's true because he wrote, I mean, this was written thousands of years ago, but you know, when he says like asana is a steady, comfortable pose, like that's Sutra 246, He's talking about probably a seated meditative pose. And okay, that's fine. But what I love about it is then he goes on in 47 and 48. And in 47, he talks about um, by lessening the natural tendency for restlessness and by meditating on the infinite, posture is mastered. That's that's Swami Satchitananda's translation of 47, mm-hmm. which I feel like I just love that teaching. And I, I often hear people mention or quote the other one, like, Yoga, asana is a steady, comfortable pose, but I often, I never hear this one quoted, which is this right. like lessening the natural tendency for restlessness and meditating on the infinite. Does like anyone talk about that in yoga classes? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> There's a lot of movement, but that, uh, what is it? The tendency toward restlessness? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's, that's what the class looks like sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it it's actually increases movement, it. No stillness, right? Right. <laughs> It's like the opposite. I know we're actually increasing our natural tendency by being more active. Well, you know, I get that too. Like there's sometimes you have to move to be still. That's fine. Just joking a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, but that's, I think it's brilliant. And especially the part that says, uh, you know, by meditating on the infinite. Like I love the idea that like um, by meditating on something bigger than your mind, bigger than your ego, bigger than your you know, small self that you can mm. somehow quiet the mind. It's so it makes me so happy like that. I love to like, I love to bring in images of like the earth, you know, grounding, connecting with earth or sky. Like that's my passion these days. Like think of something huge. Um, I think it just takes you out of your head. Yeah. Do that. And that's what we're trying to do, right? Get out of our head. Um, and then the last one he says in 48, thereafter one is undisturbed by the dualities, <clears throat> which I think is real interesting too, because the dualities is like, that's the natural world. Like the, 
the suffering is real, you know, what <laughs> the struggles the real. of life. Yeah. yeah. Like we won't be disturbed by that. Like the good and the bad, the up and down, like pain and pleasure, like that whole cycle. Um, I think we somehow transcend that when you practice asana, like it's just such an amazing idea to me and so powerful that like, you know, that we can connect with ourselves. We can have this equanimity um we can find this peace which I, I think everyone's doing like that's why they love yoga so much you know what i mean but i don't hear anyone talking about it yeah it's sort of maybe it sort of happens as a byproduct of just this mm. embodied physical practice where we're present in our bodies because i think you know dominant culture um at least in the u.s and the ways that i mean so many ways from how you know capitalism wants us to work, 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 because our worth is connected to our productivity. So we kind of ignore our needs to the way that diet culture tells us to not trust our bodies. Like there's a lot of things that keep us. um, And and also the ways that I think like knowledge is very intellectualized in this like sort of head knowledge way. You know what I mean? That oftentimes we just Mm. ignore the body completely. And I kind of think, you know, what he's talking about, or it's like these two sides of the same coin that like in the, like when you lessen those tendencies toward restlessness and like the fluctuations of the mind, all the dualities that bother you, all that stuff, like actually by being in the body, that happens as a result. It's like it sort of like settles things. and you actually realize that your body and your mind aren't two separate things <laughs> yeah. that they interact with and feed into one another. And I think, I don't know, that's what it feels like to me sometimes is that when I spend some time really in my body and not just exercising while, you know, like running on a treadmill while watching a TV is different than really being embodied and present in your body through breath and observing sensation and all of the things that we do in asana Like those are two very different experiences. And I feel like the second one where you really are present as you're moving and sensing and being in inquiry with your body, it like teaches you that you can organize your mind almost in like a way that's not about thinking, you know, I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. And actually, well, I think it's about um, a part of us beyond the mind. Like I think the thing with yoga that is often like we don't say these days is like spiritual practice that it's like it's a spiritual practice and what does that mean like what does it mean to have an embodied spiritual practice i think you described it beautifully but to me it means connecting with spirit whatever that is like that consciousness or the witness um which is it's not it's not really mind the way we talk about it like in terms of ego mind but it's right it's that it's it's the presence. It's, it's you. It's like the most you of you, you know, it's the essence mm-hmm. of you and it's not something else. So sometimes spirit, spirit is seen as like a thing we get or something we, I don't know, will gain someday, but it's like, no, the spirit and yoga is like the, the most essential part of you. And that we get to connect back to that. Like the, the mind settles, like you said, by being in the body and then we get to have that presence, like of just the the truth of us, you know, the essence of us is like revealed. That's yoga. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's that. I don't know when you're saying it, and I'm like struggling to find the words too. I'm like, this is that alchemy you were talking about mm. before. I don't remember if that was on the last podcast. 
Yeah, I love that word. um, That there is a little sort of like magic that happens um, and something that's, I think, hard to intellectualize or quantify in the ways that we're, you know, kind of trained to quantify knowledge. Do you know what I mean? There is a different sort of knowing and wisdom that happens in the body. And um, yeah, I think a lot of us find that through yoga if we don't have embodied spiritual practices that are part of like our culture, for instance. Yeah. I mean, I've been saying this in classes recently, maybe I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but what I, what I think yoga does is it really, it, it also brings awareness to that internal dialogue. And like, like you said, it's, um, maybe alchemy is a good word. It's like, um, we can witness that the talking that's happening in our mind. So like, we're all talking all the time, right? Like you're always talking in your mind, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Talking to yourself? Mm-hmm. I mean, Definitely. I am talking to myself. Yes. <laughs> but, so what I always say is like, okay, well, who is talking and who's listening? Yeah. You know, who's, who's listening to that dialogue that's happening in your head or that talking in your head? And I say like, that's the alchemy of yoga is also beginning to see that there's a listener. That's you. That's the the essence of you that's the spirit that we're trying to connect with it's just the part of you that knows that listens that um yeah that that kind of um unchanging part of you and that's what they call it in the in the sutras and in the gita is like the part of you that doesn't change versus mm-hmm. the part of you that changes that's the other part of the duality of yoga is like connecting with the part that um is eternal and unchanging versus a part of us that's constantly changing our bodies, <laughs> our bodies, and our minds, and, and our, our minds. lives, and our our circumstances, and yeah, all yeah, and like all the feelings and all the thoughts we're having about the day to day stuff that's like constantly changing. Like that's you know, but there's a part of it that's not changing. That's like steady and solid, and um, that's where we find peace. That's that's really what spirituality is to me. Is like connecting with that place that's already there. Um, that's the power of yoga to me. I love it. Okay, good. I, I don't, sometimes I wonder if it makes sense, but I think it's just right there if you read the, um, the teachings. And that's part of why I think the sutras and the Gita confuse people so much because people, you know, it, it talks about controlling the mind and all that, but really that's not, the, that's not the main theme of those teachings. It's not about controlling the mind. It's about connecting with the truer part of yourself, which is like there, that's you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's where it's powerful. All right. So can we talk about how to do it as a, especially I think as a teacher or as a person who's like leading yoga classes or, um, you know, like in that position, what, what can we do? Like, how do we speak in a way that, um, creates a conducive environment for people to make that inner journey and to connect with themselves? Yeah, I think, you know, I wanted to talk about language today because I think as as teachers, you know, our words are some of the most like powerful teaching tools we have. We have others. We have our body. You know, we can demonstrate things. We can use visuals. We can read. We can have folks do self-study. But most of what we do as teachers is communicating through our words. And so language, I think, is really, um, you know, we learn to teach yoga Um, usually by repeating the cues that our teachers teach us or the cues that we've learned over our years of practice or whatever, right? If we're talking about asana. 
And that can be helpful if the cues are precise, but also it can mean that we often end up using a lot of language that we haven't fully like investigated. And our language, I think, really sets up the norms and the expectations for our students about what this asana practice especially is all about, right? Um, whether it's about that journey of turning inward that we've been talking about or whether it's about keeping up with the pace of the class and striving to attain an advanced posture, right? Those are two completely different intentions that you can have with this practice. And the language that we use as teachers, I think, tells our students what this is all about and what Mm. we'll be doing together as a community, right? So, I mean, I think overarching, like we'll get into some specifics, but I think an overarching concept that I just want to draw people's attention to and get you to start listening for this um, when you hear it, uh, both as a teacher, as a student, is where you can hear hierarchy implied in language. So, for example, you know, I think it's really important that we normalize uh, variations on poses, on postures, right? Modifications, variations, using props, customizing our practice, right? With the understanding that everyone's practice looks different because we are all in different bodies. And so that means we have to remove hierarchy of value, Um, and, and pretty much encourage our students to like, to listen to their bodies and honor where they're at today. And hopefully we can provide some, some tools for them to do that. And so this includes things like, um, you know, the full expression of the pose, Mm. right? Which phrases like that may seem very innocuous. And I've heard them in so many classes, right? Like we'll come into the full expression of the pose. And I think it just implies a few things, right? It implies that there's one Uh, full, best, real, right, expression of the pose. And then there's a lot of other ones that are less, right? So if the full expression of the pose is a very complicated shape, right, like you're touching your foot to your head or something, then that implies to everyone who can't achieve that shape that they are doing something less than the full (laughs) yoga, right? It also, I think, implies that that shape is both safe and possible for everybody, mm. which we know not all the shapes are safe and possible for everybody. So even just this one little phrase of full expression of the pose actually tells our students so much about the practice or can leave them with the misconception that this is about hierarchy of ability or being able to make the most complicated, difficult shapes rather than this journey of turning inward and yoga being this entire system and way to do the world and not just about being the best at an asana class or something like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that example because I think it's a kind of example, you know, I think yoga teachers use that without even considering the, the underlying meaning, like you said, we should look for hierarchy in our language. And I, I just, I just want to say like the reason we're even having this conversation is because like I hear yoga teachers who say, well, of course, yoga is accessible. Like whoever wants can come to class. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like they don't, it's like, we don't see what we don't see. Like we're, we're, mm-hmm. you know, just because you don't see the ways that your language and the way you teach isn't working for people doesn't mean that you're doing it right. And I think we just need to open our, our minds to, to that, to other people's experience. So like, yeah. just cause you might be trained and like, working towards the quote, full expression of a pose or working towards a peak pose as if that's better than other poses, you know, and not really reflecting on the fact that um, for for someone else that might feel really 
exclusive and like they've failed in some way or they're not good enough or they're not really a yogi or like all those feelings that people have. So I guess I just want to like, I don't know, just try and say like why this is so important. Like this is so important. Um, I think it's important too, because, you know, if students right from the start, you know, get the impression that, okay, this is basically an exercise class where I have to keep up with the pace. Now I'm, you know, oh, I can't do the full expression of any of these poses. Like yoga's not for me. My body's messed up already. I already knew that. I'm just going to leave and not come back. You know, many, many people Mm -hmm. I've talked to that have gotten discouraged in that way. And, you know, we'll leave out the, like, whether or not Mm -hmm. that teacher actually has tools to offer them modifications or props or any of that, right? Um, Just the language that's used can make it apparent that, oh, I don't belong, or I'm not able to do the real yoga. And then we start to get confused, you know, about like, oh, so props, um, instead of props being used for what they actually are for, which is to personalize a posture that was created for one specific type of body, they, um, or, you know, props can be used in lots of ways. Props could be to make a pose more challenging. Props can be used to teach something about the body of where we want to engage a muscle or where we're looking for sensation, right? It's not, props are not a cheat or a crutch or a consolation prize or like because you're too weak or because you're not doing the real yoga. But our students, I think, get these um, subliminal messages sort of embedded in their consciousness. And that's why I get so many questions from teachers that are like, I see you teach with props. Like, but I try to teach with props and people don't want to use them. Like, why don't they want to use a block and how do I get them to use a block? And it's kind of like, well, first we have to do a little bit of education around like, let's find out like, what do our students actually believe about props? Why would they not want to use a prop? And I think the way you introduce it makes a difference too. But sometimes we just might need to back up a few steps and see like what assumptions are here through, you know, the language that I may have used or the language that other teachers have used up until the student came to me that, you know, they think that there is a full expression of the pose, that there's one right way to do the yoga. And of course they want to do that. So then they're not going to use props because the real yoga is the real pose, you know? And so if we can get to like why, you know, the root of this, I think it's important to unlearn that this is about hierarchy of physical prowess yeah. Um, ableism. Or that, ad, ad, uh, what'd you say? Ableism. I mean, it's basically. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that the most advanced asana means you're the most advanced yogi. Like we know that that is not actually true to the, the core of the teachings. And so I think it's important, like how this looks in practice is making it clear that variations on postures are neutral right? There's no variation that's more advanced or better or whatever than the other. And I think a way to really do this is to, um, A, uh, focus on foundations rather than teaching from this, like, if you can't sort of way. So, uh, for instance, sometimes I hear poses introduced like, okay, we're going to come into the most, you know, the take the bind. And from the full expression of the pose, if you can't take the bind, lift your arm and if you can't lift your arm, put your hand on your waist. And if right. you can't do that, leave and go home because you're a loser. You or rest in child's right? pose. Just rest in child's pose, which you may also not be able to do, right? And so our students, like, no yeah. wonder people leave and don't come back, right? They get discouraged. They think that, like, our brains want to achieve and want to, you know, of course, do the real yoga. And so I think rather than teaching from that place of, like, 
here's what it is. And if you can't do that, then we start from the foundation. So let's say we're teaching something like downward facing dog. We wouldn't start everybody in the traditional expression or the classical expression of down dog. Maybe we'll start folks on hands and knees, just in a simple tabletop. Give folks stuff to do there. What would you cue in down dog? Like press into your hands, you know, make your belly strong, engage your arms from the fingertips all the way up through your shoulders into your spine. Like there's a ton of work you could do in a quadruped position. Right. So we teach something there. Then we would add on if you'd like to progress or I don't know, I wouldn't even say it that way. If you'd like, you can stay right here working on these uh, muscular engagements here in quadruped or draw your hips back toward your heels and stretch your arms out in front of you. Maybe we'll come into puppy pose. Right. So now we've got half Mm -hmm. of down dog the upper body. We can cue those same things, find the work in that position. You can either stay right here, or if you'd like, you can tuck your toes, lift your knees and draw your hips back. Now, right, you can start to add on from the foundation, like grounding, finding inner body alignment, making sure you have length in the spine, like the energetic actions of the pose, whatever's happening there, right? In the last time we talked about this, we talked about like the, what is the point of the pose? Finding that essence in each of those places and building from the foundation up. That way everybody gets to have an experience in the pose and not just wait until, you know, four Mm -hmm. steps backwards of like, if you you can't, to find something that they can do. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was a beautiful example. I think, um, I don't know if most people are trained that way. It seems like most people are trained like you teach it. And then if someone can't do it, you give them this quote modification, which that word drives me crazy. Or even a progression, you know. Yeah, I know I said progress. And then I was like, wait, wait, where'd that come from? (laughs) Well, like, I get it. I get that. But sometimes I I would say that that. to teachers, maybe. But yeah, no, because I still question that too. Like, it's, it's not a bad word progression, but it's like, does that mean that like where I am now is not okay? And I just think that we have to really look at is yoga about like just changing our bodies and like, and like achieving something versus being where we are now. And I think Mm -hmm. I like how you said focus, like you gave some positive ways to do it. Like, I think we can create, I think we talked about this before you and I about creating this kind of like fun, um, experiential environment where people are like workshopping stuff and, and, and really trying things out so that it's, I think yoga can be challenging. I like to push people as far as they can go without injuring themselves, but to do it in a way that it's, it's, they're deciding how far they can go. It's not because of competition with other people. Um, it's not because they think that's more equals better yoga. So it's like, you know what I mean? So it's it's really hard. Yeah. How, it's hard to explain that to students. Like that, yeah, more is more is good if it feels good, but like more isn't necessarily better. So like going, like you said, from puppy to downward dog isn't really better, um, unless that's fun for you and like your body can do that today. Like it's a fun way to explore the body. Um, but yeah. like why? I mean, it's good. It's good to get stronger. It's good to get more um, mobility if that's what you want. Uh, it's good to be in the body, but th- that's the point, right? To be in the body and to actually really feel what's happening right now. What is going to help me? What is really good for my body today? Yeah. And I think that one of the ways we can encourage students to really trust that and and be able to choose that is like by normalizing that this concept of personalizing the practice, okay. like saying it out loud. Diane Bondi always says verbalize to normalize. I love that phrase because, 
you know, we can make it clear with our words that students know what's best for their bodies and give them space to really trust their instincts, like reminding students of who the most important instructor is in the room, right? They're the ones that are responsible for their practice, no matter how much we might want it for them. We can't do it for them. And I think that if we can find language that works um, for us, you know, as a teacher that feels true to us, like talking about variations on postures or, you know, personalizing this pose, or I like how you said, like choosing places to work. I talk about that a lot when I introduce variations on a posture because, you know, for example, something like a balancing posture, like let's say tree pose, right? You know, I've heard it often cued of like, if you can stand on one foot, stay on your mat. If you can't stand on one foot, go to the wall, right? That's how it's introduced in like half the students go to the wall or something. But I think a, a more empowering way to introduce that would be, you know, if you'd like to work on balance today, then you're gonna stay on your mat. And we're going to work with, you know, focus and where to take the gaze and all of those things. If you'd like to find more of the shape of the pose and trying to get that into your muscle memory, maybe lifting the foot higher up on the leg, those types of things, take your butt to the wall. We're going to work with that and take the balance element out of it. That way it's not about if you can balance, you're over here. And if you can't do something, you're over there, right? Which even if it's something neutral, like I don't think standing on your foot or one foot or not makes you a good or bad person. Like no one would probably say that, (laughs) but no one wants to be the student who has to go to the wall because they can't do something. I know, know right? And so like this allows, like introducing it in this like neutral way where it's not about if you can or can't do something, but giving the students the agency to pick where they want to work, I think makes a whole big difference to their practice, right? Because that brings more power to the student. They're not like a punishment for not being able to do a fancy posture, right? Mm -hmm. That choice like gives our students the agency to really take ownership of their practice, which is one of those things that creates safety and trust and the ability for folks to actually do that thing we're asking them to do, which is like be present in your bodies and turn your attention inward and all of that stuff. Like, I think that is like that empowerment and that agency is so key to this whole practice yeah. that we're asking. I love that. I love that kind of giving the reason behind, like, this is why you do it this way. Like, this is why you're going to practice standing on the mat versus this is why you might go to the wall. And like that, not one is not more or, or better than the other. It's just focus on different things. That's awesome. Um, and I think students too, you know, they always ask us like, am I doing this right? And I yeah. think whenever I hear that question, I think, oh, I haven't taught enough about this pose yet. Or I haven't taught why we do this breathing practice. Like I forget what folks don't know, (laughs) you know, and I have to like walk it back to some basics sometimes and talk about like, okay, what, you know, what, what is tree pose about? Like, what is it about as a pot? What is the essence? Where are we supposed to be feeling it in the body? What muscles are engaging? Like, I think there's a lot that you can teach within a posture and, Oftentimes we just kind of repeat the same old cues that are positional type of cues. But what if it wasn't as much about the body position or making an exact shape, but about the experience that's happening in the pose and like finding the work, mm-hmm. like whatever the work is. Okay. Um, so I'll, I have a question for you. So this is a question I get a lot, which is like, yeah. how do I make a flow, a series accessible? Because people, you know, a lot of asana classes these days have flows and, you know, where you're doing some kind of vinyasa going from one pose to another to another quite quickly. And I feel like the speed can really limit 
the the options for this, like how we can talk about some of the things we're saying here. Can you give some, do you have an idea about that? Like how could you make a vinyasa more accessible? Yeah. Slow your roll. Slow your roll. Okay. Seriously. Okay. So here I'm going to make a case for why I think like slow vinyasa is actually the way to go. Yes. Um, Because I do love using vinyasa. I like, I just have a personal bias and preference toward classes that have more movement um, versus like long static holds of postures, you yeah. know? Yeah. But I do yeah. think that trying to like synchronize breath with movement, like one breath, one movement is like a very sort of quote unquote advanced form of yoga choreography that doesn't always work for everybody, right? Some folks need more time to get into postures so they can actually feel what's going on there. Maybe folks that have trouble getting up and down off the floor, people in larger bodies, like there are those of us who need some time in the practice to arrange ourselves Mm -hmm. into a version of the pose that actually is compatible with our individual anatomy. And in a class where it's like, inhale, do this, exhale, do that. And it moves so fast, like sometimes we don't even have time to transition to the next posture before the teacher's on to the next posture. Yep. And so I think you can make a choice to teach a class like that if that's what you want to do. That's fine. Um, but I think, you know, connect with your why as a teacher. Like, why are you teaching and what is this all about? And if your goal is to make a class that's inclusive and accessible for everyone, it might mean that it's not going to look like that traditional scripted vinyasa class that so many of us are familiar with. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of class, but that is not an accessible class for the majority of people. And so I think it depends on why you're doing it. So for me, I think, and, and everyone that I've ever sort of asked this question to has agreed that moving very slowly and with intention actually is a lot harder work Mm -hmm. than quickly popping in and out of postures where you don't even have to like, engage with down dog because you're literally only there for half a cycle of breath. Do right. you know what I mean? Right. And actually, Whereas, I don't think it, it's not like you have to slow that. Much. I mean, even just a little bit slower. <laughs> like, yeah. I like what you said about it doesn't have to be one breath, one movement. Like you could take two breaths and that could be a way of changing the pace to give people time to adjust. Um, and it's more challenging, actually, like you said. Yes, it's more challenging. And I think that you know, there's also an opportunity to when you're strategizing your flows and your sequences that you could build in this um, this type of teaching we're talking about where you build from the ground up. Like we talked about tabletop, then puppy pose, yeah. then down dog, then maybe lift one leg and down dog. Right. You can continue to like build and make it spicier or whatever yeah. that you could also have an opportunity to do that with the choreography of your sequence. If you want to create a vinyasa flow, that there's maybe a basic flow that you're going to teach to the entire class that's more accessible. And then there's the option to repeat that or to add these other p- postures or poses or whatever you want. Right. To so do. you're basically so that- teaching of you're teaching a version first that's more accessible Um, like a foundation and then you're adding to it if people have a choice to add something like they if they want yeah Um, so for instance i taught a vinyasa class i don't know some whenever before the pandemic where we did um like a warrior two side angle triangle like those kind of shapes series um we had like a flow that was i think we were in it for like one or two breaths for each pose but we were flowing between them and we started with a seated version of that 
And we ran through that two or three times. And then on the next round, I said, you can stay seated or if you'd like, you can follow Mm. me and stand. And then some people were doing the standing sequence and some people were practicing seated. But that way there was an option for everyone that was participating and we built from there. Yeah. And it could be done even without doing the chair version first. You could do it just by building on a, a few foundational poses and then adding in maybe more challenging ones. But also, um, and, and like you said earlier, going a little slower, I guess I just feel like there's kind of the, it feels like there's two different yoga worlds even right now, like in, these, in the US, like there's like the very fast vinyasa classes. And then there's the ones that are more like accessible, you know, classes that go slow enough that people can catch up. And I just, I feel like we need to address the, those fast classes to think, you know, you got to find a way, like, I know, I think what it is, is that teachers want to serve those students too, like those more physically advanced students. Mm-hmm. So they think that those people would be unhappy. Um, but I think you need to find a way to teach them like, this is yoga, going slower is also yoga and more challenging, you know, it's more challenging too, um, so that we can welcome everyone together. Like, I really feel like p- this level system drives me crazy. Like it's a form of segregation, you know? I agree. And I also think that there are so many learning opportunities for our students who would rather, what was that quote? The tendency toward natural restlessness. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like for folks who find it very difficult to move slowly or to move towards stillness, there is a lesson in that. You know what I mean? Like that there, there is a, a way that you have to acknowledge and start to manage your mind when it doesn't just become about like being in the body because it's so physically demanding that you can't really think about anything else. That's different, you know, which you may experience in a fast vinyasa class that's very strenuous versus uh, the presence and the, the awareness of mind required to be in an uncomfortable or difficult posture for many breaths or a longer period of time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I mean, that's part of why I say accessible is advanced. I have, there's a lot of reasons why I say that, but one of them is what you just said, which is that actually, if you look at the yoga teachings, like you just said, like the, the natural tendency towards restlessness is what we're trying to work on in asana. And like, if you're just moving really fast, you're not, you're, you're basically just feeding that tendency um, of the body mind to always move fast. And yoga is actually about slowing it down. I mean, it really is. So And I get it. Like, it's not bad to move fast. Some people need that. That's okay. But at least then after, like when you're finished your fast flow, do something slow, like really have a long Shavasana, have a, have a Mm -hmm. seated meditation. Like if you can sit in meditation for a minute after doing a really a fast, intense flow, like that's going to help. I would, I mean, maybe do Shavasana first and then sit in meditation and like enjoy the benefit of that work you did like get that energy out the the rajasic part of your energy right like that's that fast moving energy we got to get that out first um to allow the 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 sattvic energy right that's that peaceful energy um that's what we're trying to get to in yoga is the sattva and and actually supposedly if you look at those the gunas those are the energies right that it's actually easier to get to sattva through rajas than through tamas meaning tamas Mm -hmm. is like lethargy and slow moving energy it's harder to get to the peace if you don't do anything, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you just like lay around. But if you move and do something, get the body going, then it's true. You can get to peace after that. It's just it's just that if you don't bother like doing that last part of like getting to the peace, then I feel like you kind of miss the point 
of all that work. Yeah, and then it's just an exercise class. Oh, and I was saying why accessible is advanced because going slow, being peaceful, being still, that can look accessible, but that's actually advanced yoga. Um, that's what that's the goal of yoga, right? That stillness, the stillness of mind. That's like the definition of yoga, right? Stillness of mind, right? Um, yeah. And accessible is advanced for other reasons too, which is that I think as a teacher like for teachers who are listening and might feel overwhelmed or confused, like that's part of it too. Like to make classes accessible, you got to have a lot of skills, you know, you got to have a lot of awareness and a lot of tools um, to be able to address the people in your room and to, and I mean, it's not overwhelming, but I think it's advanced. I think that's the most advanced kind of teaching that addresses everyone needs and everyone's needs in that space rather than just this very intense physical practice. That's not, to me, that's not advanced yoga. I'm sorry. Agreed. Co-signed. 100%. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe anything else you want to say? Should we leave it there? Any other? Um, you... So the only other thing I wanted to say, since we talked a little bit about props, um, but okay. I just want to like explicitly sort of say to teachers, teach what props are for and how to use them. Mm -hmm. Right. I think like for the first, I don't know, however many years of my practice, the type of prop, uh, teaching that I experienced was teachers saying like, use a block if you need one, or you should really be using a strap. Like, I, but never was I told like, you take the block and you put it under your hand so that you can actually press down into the floor with your hand. That's the point of getting your hand to the floor, mm. not so you're bendy and flexible, right? Like no one ever sort of taught me that, oh, this is why we're using the prop. So I think we can teach what props are for and do a little bit of re-education so that students, and to me, this is about taking the hierarchy out of language too, right? That props are sometimes yeah. thought of as yeah. a cheat or a crutch or, oh, I don't want to do a prop. I want to do the real yoga, right? We yeah. hear these kinds of things from yeah. our students. Yeah. And so it is such a big opportunity to re-educate folks about adaptive practice and talk about it in an empowering way that this is not about, you know, a constellation prize for not being able to use, do the yoga without yeah. the props. Like these are here as teaching yeah. tools for us. And just like a, a sticky mat is a prop, but no one feels stigma about using that, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, that there, you know, I think that there's this sort of hierarchy of physical prowess that we've gotten it a little bit twisted about what this is all about. And we need to just step back a few steps and t teach our students like, yeah, I know you may have been in classes where these were called modifications, which, you know, kind of implies that they're yeah. less than or that these are props and props are for beginners. And, and that's actually not true. This is not what's true. true about props, you know, and like we can take that opportunity as teachers. It's so exciting to me to think about like teachers, you know, we might feel like we don't have that much power over like the yoga world or, you know, even at your own studio or whatever, especially like during the pandemic when all of our worlds are so uh, disrupted. But we really do get to drive and shape this culture, right? We get to mm -hmm. set the expectations for our students, what this practice is all about. And we get to really, you know, shape that education of, you know, why are you here? And what is the point of making these shapes with our bodies? And, you know, you may have picked up on the fact that it's about, you know, physical prowess or touching your feet to your head or whatever, but we're going to reorient and go back to the essential teachings and no, this is what we're here to do. Yeah. This inward journey. And like, we get to teach that. So yeah. 
That's what teaching yoga is all about. <laughs> also, I like what you said, teach about props, also demonstrate using props. I think that helps. Oh, yes. Also, giving out props to everyone really helps to normalize the use. Give everybody the same ones. Yeah. yeah. So that's great. All right. Thanks, Amber. Anything else? Do you want to leave them with a question um, to consider? Mm, yes. Let me think about that for a second. So maybe instead of a question, I would leave you with a challenge, which is to take, um, to think of a posture that you normally teach in your classes. Um, and, you know, we gave the example of down dog in this one, where instead of starting everybody off in the traditional expression, we would start everybody off in tabletop and then maybe progress to puppy pose and then maybe down dog. So take a posture that you normally teach in class. If you teach like the traditional expression of that pose, what's your strategy next time to introduce it in a more accessible way? So maybe if it's tree pose, instead of teaching it with your the foot against the thigh, you're going to start with both feet on the ground and just toes touching of the leg that you'll eventually lift. And then how would you progress that for your students to be able to find a place that they could participate in the pose? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So working on a pose at different levels and finding like different levels that you could teach uh, in a class. Like I, I often say yeah. spectrum of possibilities. That's what each asana is. It's a spectrum. Um, no part yeah, of that I love spectrum that. Chris better. Yeah. Right. And um, Christina Sell calls it the bus stop method where it's like you the student gets to pick like which stop along the you know continuum of this posture or shape or practice. Uh, where do you want to get off and do some work and mm. do some exploration, nice. some yeah. inquiry? So, awesome. Okay. Great. Well, thanks, Amber. Nice talking thanks, to you. Thanks, Stephen. Okay. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another week of the Accessible Yoga Podcast. You can check out everything we're doing and get show notes for the podcast over at www.accessibleyogatraining.com. You'll find the podcast where you can subscribe. We'd really appreciate it if you subscribe or if you leave us a review. The reviews are awesome and they really help us understand how we can make it better, what you like, what you don't, what's working, what's not. So please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and you can subscribe there too. And please visit AccessibleYogaTraining.com where you can jump on our wait list for the next Accessible Yoga Training course starting in January and also get information about our other upcoming courses and everything that we offer. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We'll see you next time.